0: It's Thursday. The weekend is nearly here. So, how's that rig look? How's your car look? Date night? Maybe going to the in-laws? Have you got a big meeting? No matter what it is, you better be rolling up in a sweet-looking ride. That's an important impression right there. You better make it count. Stabil products keep them all running smoothly year after year, providing protection for every engine you own. Every Stabil product is specially formulated to treat each of your vehicles or equipment differently, whether they're on the road or in the water or in your backyard tool shed. Stabil products have been recommended by over 100 original equipment manufacturers and they have been used and trusted by consumers for 60 years. Whether for day-to-day use or during long periods of storage, you can rely on Stable's powerful fuel additives to protect your vehicle or equipment from today's fuels. Visit StableRadio.com for more info. StableRadio.com for more info. Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The NFL Draft is finally here, and can I tell you, not a second too soon. For a while, I did not think that this day was ever going to come, but it's finally here, and it will finally get underway tonight in Arlington. The Browns make the first pick. And unlike in previous years, when the first pick was already announced and practically signed, there is some suspense this year. There's some drama, there's some mystery, and I've got to admit, I hate it. I mean, I really hate it. Don't get me wrong. I don't dislike suspense. In fact, I like that. Much better to have that than a guy who has already signed his contract days before the pick is even made. It's not that I don't like knowing. That's fine. That's good. What's not are all these stupid stories that go along with this. I mean, one day, Josh Allen is Cleveland's guy because of that arm strength and the AFC North weather. The next day, it's Sam Darnold because of his leadership and his physical attributes. Then the next day, it's Baker Mayfield because of his playmaking. The next day, they might trade down. But the fact is, all of it is 100% pure smoke. Are the Browns going to take Baker Mayfield number one? Maybe. Or do they want you to think that they're going to take Baker Mayfield number one so that somebody trades up with them? Maybe. Essentially, this is the entire point right? Nobody outside the Browns organization knows. And the way this draft has been covered and the way nearly everybody has reported that everyone is going number one, what that means is nobody knows Jack. Nobody knows anything. And every one of those reports also contains a hedge or 50. So what you're reading isn't worth your time. You're not really reading anything or hearing anything at all in the first place. I mean, you and I can debate who's going to go number one, but I highly doubt the Browns are debating who's going to go number one. And if they are, they're in even worse trouble than we thought. A few few hours out from the draft, if they still don't know who they're going to draft, then this is not the draft that is going to save the Browns. About the only person who is enjoying this entire process is Baker Mayfield, who dropped an all-time tweet last night. Check this. You've probably seen it, and if you haven't, you've got to look this over. Forget the Brett Favre quote that went along with that tweet. It's something about the people being in your corner. You can check out the tweet if you want. I prefer to look at the picture. Check the people in the photo. And I've got this up on CBS Sports Network if you're watching the simulcast, and if not, just go to Twitter and check it out. Total freaking commitment to the Brett Favre reenactment. Now, I don't know if Baker Mayfield can take a team straight to a Super Bowl, but I know he can take you straight to 1991. Look at these pictures. We're talking wood paneling. Photos on the wall, family and friends in homemade t-shirts and poses that are replicas of the ones that Favre's crew was rocking back in the day. You've got the dude in the mint green polo and the guy in the yellow and black polo holding a cup. They even have some gal with an old school video cam in the background. They did everything, even down to the jorts, the Zach Morris phone and the weirdly casual lying on the bed pose from Mayfield. It's good stuff. Really good stuff. One source told ESPN that it took them three hours to pull that thing together. If that's true, he just jumped to the top of my draft board. I'm taking him number one overall. If you can pull off that shot in three hours or less, you can do anything. If you can create that look that quickly, then you can take Cleveland from 0-16 to 16-0 in a matter of hours as well. What I'm getting at is that tweet was exactly what the doctor ordered because it broke up the monotony of this grind of this draft. And if you're Josh Allen, you're probably a little relieved that people are talking about that. Somebody else's tweet instead of your racist tweets from the past that just popped up. Look, I don't know how or why those surfaced hours before the draft. Actually, I do. I know exactly how that happens. Listen. If you're somebody who matters, and even if you're somebody who doesn't, if you tweet something ignorant or racist, it absolutely is going to come back and bite you in the back. And I don't care how old you were when you said it. If you said it, somebody will find it. So don't say it. Better yet, don't think it. That way, you won't have to explain yourself to your potential employers, teammates, and the rest of the world. I mean, I would love to say that this is the last time I'm ever going to have to say it, but I know it's not. I'll probably have to reset it tomorrow. But the internet really is an ink. What you tweet when you're a teenager never disappears. Whether you get drafted by an NFL team or you end up working for an accounting firm, it's something that you may have to answer to at some point. So maybe you don't tweet out garbage like that, and then it won't come back to haunt you. Maybe you don't think garbage like that and then you'll never tweet it. Garbage. So having said all that, what are my predictions for tonight? Get a pen out. Write this down. Somebody is going to be left in the green room longer than expected. A bunch of quarterbacks will be taken and every team that drafts one will claim that he was their first choice all along. Even the team that takes the fourth quarterback off the board is going to tell the world that he was their first quarterback on their board. Oh, and there will be hugs. Lots of awkward hugs. And even more awkward awkward handshakes with Roger Goodell. Lots of things being very awkward. Awkward. Beyond that, anybody who's reporting anything or guaranteeing you anything right now is simply blowing smoke. They're throwing ish up against the wall, hoping that it sticks, and it generally does not. But at least it's here. We finally made it. (laughs) Mike Mayock is my guest. Mike, good morning. Great to have you on. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Jim. How are you doing, man?
0: Good, Mike. I'm great. It's your big day. You released your one and only mock draft, and you've got Cleveland. Let me start right there. Cleveland taking Sam Darnold, number one. Mike, what do you make about that fit for the team and for the player? Why do you like him going right there?
1: Yeah, i thought, Jim, since the combine, that with John Dorsey and Charles, the two quarterbacks that make the most sense based on his background and history, would be Sam Darnold and Josh Allen. And I'm not really going to change my mind. I brought the Baker Mayfield stuff. I get it. But at the end of the day, I love the Sam Darnold fit because I think Josh Allen might have a little bit more upside. He's got the biggest arm in the draft, et cetera. But he's got some bustability to him also from an accuracy, anticipation, and timing perspective. So I think Darnold has almost the same ceiling. I think he's safer and what I really love about the pick is that the signing of Tyrod Taylor in the offseason, I think he's an undervalued starting quarterback. And what it does is whoever they take, it gives them the opportunity to bring that kid along at the pace the kid demands. And he'll be ready to start because Tyrod Taylor's a good, I think he's a very solid quarterback. They can start him whenever they want. So I think they're, a, it's a perfect situation to develop a young quarterback behind.
0: We're talking to Mike Mayock. I agree with you, Mike. I like Tyrod Taylor. I mean, I'm mean, i not saying that he's a franchise guy who's going to lead you to a Super Bowl, but I think the guy's a lot better than he gets credit for. So I agree with you. I think that's a good situation. You mentioned Baker Mayfield. You mentioned the reports that you saw about him possibly going there, ESPN saying that there are coaches in GM saying that now they're leaning towards that. If, in fact, that were the case, play along for a minute, if that were the case and they were to take him, what would your reaction be?
1: Uh... I'd be surprised, just again, because of John's history. But John's got a little flagged to him, and, and so does Baker Mayfield. And I think he embraces the moment, and I don't think any situation would be too big for the kid. Uh, I think from a, an injury perspective, from a television perspective, from a fan interest perspective, if Mayfield went first, it changes the entire top end of the draft. I think the Giants have to be sitting there at two and thinking – if there's a franchise quarterback available that they believe in, and if Darnold is that guy, for instance, if he was available at two, the franchise quarterback trumps everything else, you know, and all of a sudden Barkley or Chubb could be out of the picture. If Darnold was the guy for the giants and now you, you look at the jets at three, maybe sitting there going, Oh my goodness, the worst case scenario has happened. We traded from six to three, hoping we get the number two quarterback, not the number three quarterback, but, I think Mayfield going one with change would reset the whole deck.
0: Today's episode brought to you by Fan Exchange. Get to Fan Exchange. Grab some tickets. Get outside. Watch some baseball in person. You cannot beat it. Now is the time to do it. That's what you do in the spring and summer. Do it now. Head on over to Fanexchange.com for a safe, easy, and reliable experience. The second round of the NHL playoffs are here. Baseball is in full swing every single night. Make some memories. Get to Fan Exchange. Get yourself to a game. Tickets purchased on Fan Exchange are always guaranteed. There's no getting to the gate and then worrying about how you're going to get in. Fan Exchange will get you closer to the action. Find the very best seats at the best prices at fanexchange.com. You want to use the promo code Rome. That's the promo code Rome, and then get 50% off the service fees on your next purchase. Fan Exchange. We have tickets. Fan Exchange. Mike Mayock, NFL Network Analyst, joining us. But, Mike, then we flip back. If it doesn't go that way and Sam Darnold does go number one and Saquon Barkley is sitting there at number two for the Giants, you've talked about him being a generational running back. What is it about him that makes him so special and how much would he change that Giants offense if that's where he ends up?
1: Yeah, I think he's a great fit. And, you know, if you look at Gurley, Ezekiel Elliott, Fournette, three of the running backs that have gone in the top ten in the last several years, When a team commits to them philosophically and feeds them the football, they become better. All three of those players help those teams become better immediately. It takes pressure off quarterback. It takes pressure off the defense because it shortens the game, and it helps the offensive line. And that offensive line in New York has to get fixed also. They signed Patrick O'Mahme. They signed the left tackle folder. They're doing the right things to fix it. But if you plug him in there and commit to him, and get him 20-plus touches a game, all of a sudden, I believe you're right back in that NFC East mix.
0: NFL Network's coverage of the draft gets sent away at 8 p.m. Eastern this evening. Mike, there were reports that emerged last night that Josh Allen had offensive tweets from a few years back. Knowing the research, Mike, the team's put into each player, do you think that surprised any NFL front office or would change their thinking on him in any way?
1: I don't think it would change anyone's thinking, first of all. Uh, I think they they probably, most of them, have done that homework anyway. Uh, And at the end of the day, uh, it's just a shame. You're 15, 16, 17, and you put something stupid out there in today's world. It lives with you, as I try to tell my children all the time.
0: It's funny, Mike. I said the same thing. I said no sooner than I saw that, I sent my kids a tweet saying, listen, it better that you don't think this at all but you really don't right. want to put that down anywhere where somebody can see it because the internet is in ink and it will come back. But best of all, just don't think it. Then you have nothing to worry about. What do you come out, Mike, on Josh Rosen? One of the things that really jumps out to me about your mock is you've got him going to Arizona at 15. Can you lay that out for me? What's the thinking behind that?
1: Yeah, I have no issues with the kid. I hear all the stuff about the kid and, and what kind of teammate he is or how smart he is. And I'm like, I don't understand when intelligence has become a bad thing. I, I look at that as a positive, that he's a smart kid. I think he's a tough kid. I don't discount him as a person. My discount comes because I think I see Sam Bradford. And what that means is a beautiful, natural thrower of football, but an inability to protect yourself. He had a couple concussions last year. He missed half the year the year before with a shoulder and if there are durability concerns, no matter how good you are, like when Sam Bradford's healthy and they protect him, it's beautiful. But I couldn't take a quarterback in the top three, five, six, eight if I was concerned about his ability to answer the bell on a week-to-week basis.
0: And Mike, you know the Bills Mafia is really curious about how this is going to go. The Bills have a number of options in front of them. Let me ask you about Buffalo. What makes the most sense for the Bills?
1: Well, I mean, if Sam Darnold were to slide a little bit and they, they would have the ability to trade up and get him, that makes a ton of sense for me. Uh, if it goes as I thought it would go in my mock, you know, with Darnold going one, Mayfield's going at three, uh, I think they've talked to every team up there going as high as number two. They've accumulated all that draft capital. They've got to come out of this draft with a quarterback. They signed A.J. McCarron, has a limited starting history. Um, I've got them taking Josh Allen by trading from 12 to six and they've got to do something tonight. And, and I tried to get them up to Cleveland at four, but I think Cleveland wants to get Mike McGlinchey to tackle to fill in the spot for the uh, Joe Thomas who just retired. So, Somewhere in that four, five, six range, I think you're going to see Buffalo come up and get their
0: quarterback. Mike Mayock joining me for a few more moments to draft this tonight. NFL Network is all over it. Mike, you were in Indy for the combine, of course. You had a chance to witness everything that Shaquem Griffin did. I've had a chance to speak with him several times over the years. Every time I talk to him, Mike, I come away loving him even more. And he said, you said, that he plays harder on every single snap than any player in the country, which is really high praise. What do you make of him as a person and as a football player?
1: I'm excited for his future. He he lights up a room. He's what I call an energy giver, which is a positive thing in the locker room. Positive energy. Uh, He'll help change the culture of the way you play on your team, in your locker room, in the linebacker meeting room, everything about this kid's positive. And obviously we all know about the situation with his hand. Um, I don't even worry about that, Jim. What, the only, here's, what, here's how I evaluate him as a football player. He's six feet 27, and like six foot two hundred pounds linebackers, even though he can run and he's got a great motor, he's going to get stuck on blocks with big offensive tackles. So when you're six foot two twenty seven, even though you run four three eight, most of the time those guys go somewhere in the fourth or fifth round. And I think what Shaquem Griffin's gonna be is probably somewhere in the fourth round, he'll be a special teams player. He lived on the edge and he's played uh played the edge position, defensive end outside linebacker, but he's gonna have to learn to play off off the ball. And remember, I mean, like his brother, he played defensive back in high school. So even though he doesn't have a hand, he's used to play in defensive back.
0: I love everything about the kid,
1: and I think his intangibles trump all. And whatever team gets him, they are going to love this kid.
0: I agree. I love the guy. I I love the guy, and I think it's going to be so great for the culture. whoever ends up with him. So here we are, Mike, a few hours out from the start of the draft. What does the rest of the day look like for you before the draft does get underway?
1: (laughs) It's basically just kind of sitting at the desk at the hotel, talking to some teams around the league, trying to get a feel for what's real and what isn't real. And run through my final checklist of what I think can happen tonight, reviewing bios of about 40 to 42 kids that I think might be the 32 picks tonight, and, and just trying to chill a little bit and get my head straight.
0: <laughs> Nothing ever lives up to the hype except LeBron James. He's the rare exception. I mean, look at this guy, and I don't mean last night. Look at this guy. He comes into the NBA with crazy, crazy hype. I mean, I'm talking Tony Mandrich meets Todd Van Poppel with Jamarcus Russell, Felipe Lopez, Freddie Adu, and the two Heismans of Ron Paulus mixed in. In 15 years, three titles, four MVPs, and seven straight trips to the finals, and this guy is still exceeding it. And not just exceeding it, but smashing it in absurd fashion. 44 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists, and one absolutely electric sequence in the final seconds. It was another one of those, do I have to do everything around here performances from LeBron. And the answer is yes. Yes, you do. And he did. With the score tied at 95, Vic Oladipo drove to the basket. Here's what happened next. Shot
2: clock down to six.
0: Oladipo gets a running start at LeBron, goes to the foul line down the lane.
1: Blocked by LeBron! He tracks it down from behind, and the Cavaliers take a timeout! Oh, what a play by the four-time MVP as he tracked down Oladipo, slapped it off the backboard, and now the Cavaliers have a chance to win it with three seconds to go! Oh, my!
0: Seriously, how does a guy that old, with that many miles, recover? Recover? I mean, he blew right by him. How does he recover and make that block? I mean, I have no idea, and I saw it. And I've been watching this guy's entire career. However, was it goaltending? Don't take my word for it. Let's just check in with Vic.
2: I got a step on him. Felt like I even got grabbed on the way to the rim. <laughs> I tried to shoot a layup. It hit the backboard. Then he blocked it. His replays, I guess you guys can see. I guess it's a tough play at the time for him, but... It was a goaltend. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to even speak on it. It just sucks, honestly. Um, it really sucks. We, even though we, we fought our way back, uh, we tied the game up, that layup is huge.
0: Saying something sucks is not a take, you know this. But he's right, that did suck. <laughs> I mean, was that a goaltend? Maybe. Probably. Almost definitely. Of course it was but it was not called, and I really don't care because I don't root, and it set this up. Green will play it in. They won't challenge the inbound. Green gets it to James on the move, a three from dead center, and he hit it. He hit it.
1: Of course he hit it. Absolutely stunning. This one you think you've seen it all. This guy, who, by the way, is not a great three-point shooter, moved to the center of the floor, picked up the dribble, and drained it as time expired.
0: Pacers Radio, and this guy who, by the way, is not a good three-point shooter. If you had given that thing 30 more seconds, they would have been like, and by the way, this guy's not even a good basketball player. And by the way, this guy's not a good human being. (laughs) And by the way, he's not a good three-point shooter. Yo, he was dead-eye right there, wasn't he? Jarred that one. Money, an absolute all-timer from a guy who has a career of all-timers. Game saving, chase down block on one end, game winning three on the other. A truly legendary and iconic moment that everybody was racing to compare it to. I mean, was that MJ versus the Cavs in 89? LeBron versus the Magic in 09? LeBron versus Minnesota earlier this season? Howie LaForce asked him after the game what he had said to his teammates before that play. And he said, quote, just give me the ball. Just give me the ball. Give me the ball. Yeah, King, I'm not, I'm not so sure you actually had to say that. I'm not sure you needed to say that. I don't think your teammates wanted the ball. I don't think your teammates would even know what to do with it if they got the ball. Everybody not named Kyle Korver was a complete mess last night. Kevin Love, 2 for 11. J.R. Smith, 0 for 8. His biggest contribution to that game was the post-game interview shower for LeBron. And the worst part, from an Indiana perspective, is you knew what was going to happen, you knew where the ball was going to go, and you had a foul to give, and you didn't give it. Nate McMillan said that they talked about that in the huddle, and they simply didn't execute. Agreed. But then again, I'm just going to argue that even if they tried, it wouldn't have mattered. They were powerless to stop this guy. You weren't stopping LeBron. Not there, not in that moment. Indiana's a good team. Indiana is a smart team. They knew what was going to happen. Everybody in that building knew what was going to happen, and there was nothing they could have done to prevent it. You know, kind of like a great pitcher who's got a 3-2 count. You know what pitch he's going with. He could show it to you. He could tell you what he's going to throw, and even though you're ready for it you know what's coming, you can't touch it. Indiana knew what LeBron was going to do. They talked about it. They prepared for it, and they still couldn't stop it. That's greatness. And the thing is, LeBron didn't execute because, as Brent Barry pointed out in the commentary, there wasn't a play there. The play was give LeBron the ball, let him go to work, and that's exactly what he did. As a
2: kid, you always have those like those three, two, one moments, you know, when you're a kid and, and being able to have one of those moments, and that's what it kind of felt like. Just felt like I was a kid all over again, just uh, you know, playing basketball at my in my house and. Um, you know, makeshift hoops and, you know, my socks as a basketball.
0: He's right. I mean, who didn't have those moments as a kid? I know I did. I also know that mine did not include blocking a shot at the other end to set up that 3-2-1 moment. And yes, normally taking a 3-2 lead and holding home court advantage does not warrant jumping up on the scorer's table. Normally, I would say that Spurs fan screaming, we did it, we did, we it! did it, we did it after winning game two back in the day we would have thought that LeBron jumping up on that scores table was a huge overreaction. but notice I'm not saying that not last night, not after that block and after that shot. you do that even in the first round you could celebrate any way you want. So now LeBron heads back to Indiana with a 3-2 lead over the Pacers. Yes I said it yes you heard me LeBron three, Pacers, too. Out here, Lincoln Riley joining us. So you still haven't even had a full year on the job. What have the last 10-plus months been like for you?
2: Yeah, crazy. You know, fun. A lot of fun.
1: Uh,
2: hectic, crazy, all all the above. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's definitely been different, you know, to to have the first year and and all that all that happened in that in an eventful first year uh, ahead of even your first spring practice. You know, it's that's been, but it's it's been great. Our, our staff's been great. Our, our fan support, our administration, they've just they've been tremendous. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. The, the last season was great with with what the team was able to do win our 11th uh, Big 12 championship and. Having a guy win the Heisman, all the different things that happened there, and then recruiting right now is is, is at a great level, so it's a, a great time for Oklahoma football.
0: Lincoln Riley joining us. What about you personally? How different would you say you are as a coach right now than even you were at this point last year?
2: Oh, I mean, I think you still got to be yourself, but you definitely have to. You definitely adapt as you've been in this job, and I know i have been in it long, uh, but I you. you you feel the need to, to continue to be better for the people around you, the people that are looking, you know, to you to, to give the program, you know, the direction in every sense of the word. And so, you know, you feel that responsibility. Uh, there's so many decisions you you make on a daily basis that you gotta, you know, continue to do your very best there and and uh, continue to grow as a coach so you know all the experiences i've been through have certainly made me better uh, but i know i've got a long ways to go and but excited to, to be able to you know go through that journey here at a place like oklahoma you know uh, it's there's really no place like it and uh you know so to get a chance to do it here is very special to me
0: as soon as head football coach lincoln riley my guest you mentioned your heisman trophy winner i had your former player Didi westbrook on the show yesterday or the day before and he was raving about baker mayfield as a teammate from a coach's standpoint what was baker like to coach
2: a lot of fun uh, a lot of fun uh, the main reason that he was fun to coach was you know even after he had some success early in his career here he always he always wanted to get better he always let me coach him hard always responded the right way and and uh, was hungry to get better and you just you appreciate that about a guy because human nature a lot of times when we have some success says, well, this is going good. I kind of got it now, and, and we get on a little bit of a cruise control, and uh, it's uh, it happens to a lot of people. And uh, throughout all the good things he did, he was able to, to stay humble, focused, continue to be coached hard, and um, obviously brought a lot to our program. He was a great leader, put every, every ounce he had into it. But uh, it's, it's fun to see, you know, just the the, the rise from – you know, a guy that was just trying to start here, and then even after he played, a guy that people said would never play in the NFL, never would do this and that. And here he is getting ready to be a first round pick. So um, it's been been fun to see he was a a joy to coach and I'm, i'm excited to see uh you know what this next part of the journey is like for him
0: lincoln riley my guest you know it's a pretty exhaustive answer you covered that pretty well but one more thought about that during the draft process you know how this goes lincoln every guy is going to get picked apart regardless especially when there's so much time between the end of the season and the draft itself when that comparison between johnny Manziel and baker mayfield was made what was your reaction to it
2: you know, I don't know Johnny, you know, personally that well. We've met a few times, so I, I always think it's hard to to judge people. So I, I I don't know that I would compare him or not compare him to anybody else. But I I'm I'm confident in who Baker is as a person. You know, I've seen I've seen how the guy's grown. He's made mis- some mistakes. You know, on a very public stage. That's part. You know, a little bit part of it. Part of the growth process. But he's always learned from them. He's always taken responsibility from them. He's never hurt anybody else with them and I, I just the guy that we see each and every day here is a guy that can you know certainly did a great job uh, helping to lead our program and I, I feel like he's going to do a great job for whichever team is, is smart enough to select him uh, he's, he's got a unique way about him uh, both on and off the field uh, and then on the field you know the comparison I would say which you know obviously got a chance to, have to I know more about Johnny on the field than off is you know, Baker's one of the most efficient guys to ever do it, and uh, you know there's not there's not much comparison in, in the tape when you put it on. Uh, Johnny's electric athlete, not to take anything away from him, but you know, Baker's very much in control, never you know, very much within the system and then making plays when he needs to on the side when something breaks down. So I I think there's definitely some differences on the field and I'm just very confident in the person he is off the field.
0: Lincoln Riley, my guest, you know, it's not just about Baker Mayfield though. In fact, I had Mark Andrews and Orlando Brown in studio during the draft prep. So what's going to mean to you to see their names called and know they're taking the next step in their lives and their careers? How much pride is there in that for you as a head coach? A
2: lot, a lot, because you know we kind of all came in the door, you know, all all of us at the at the same time, and and you know we're all a part of each other's you know success. Those guys are a big part of the reason I got a chance to to coach here, and then a chance to be the head coach here. So that's certainly not lost on me. They've they've been a blast to coach, along with some of our other seniors. I think Obo Okafor's got a chance to to really has really moved up people's draft boards and has a chance to be a, a high round pick as well. So uh, yeah proud of all those guys it's it's been a long journey here they handled the transition here so well when a lot a lot of people wouldn't uh they've won three straight big 12 championships here which is so difficult to do and accomplish so much and done it with class so they they've been a joy to coach and I couldn't be I couldn't be happier to watch him take the next step. It's uh, one of the best things about our job.
0: That seems to me as I'm looking from way over here at what's going on there, you want to embrace the tradition because the program's amazing in that regard, but I'm not saying you want to put your own stamp on it, but obviously you've got something to bring to it. You've got your own ideas, so there's going to be some changes. There's going to be some tweaks. One of the changes was the arrival of your old strength and conditioning coach, Benny Wiley, from when you were playing at Texas Tech. You told SI that when you were there, quote, I was in decent shape for a college kid. I wasn't in good shape for college athlete that was a painful day end quote so what do you remember (laughs) about meeting Benny for the first time and what was it like working out with him
2: well first he looks like a Greek god so he looks like we all wish we could look and uh so you know you kind of you see that right off the top and then and then he just got such a unique way to be able to to push you to um, to train you to make you mentally tougher, but also doing it in a way you understand and a way that you respect. And uh, got a great way with people, especially young people. Uh, takes a, the the extra time to really uh, just invest in their lives as a whole. And uh, and he's great as far as helping to build the mentality of the team, which I think is maybe the most important job of a strength coach because of the amount of times that they're with them. So yeah, when this job came open, he was you know. Uh, definitely a guy that, that shot to the top of my list and and just with the trust that we built up the the real life situations that we had already been through together he was a, the perfect guy for the job and and I think he's already making a difference for us
0: sooner said coach Lincoln Riley for a few more moments here in the jungle you know obviously outside the program the big question is who's going to replace Baker Mayfield rather than have you break down that quarterback battle Lincoln can you tell me what are you looking for in your starting quarterback
2: Well, I mean, I think the most important thing a quarterback can do is get the other 10 guys around him to play better. And I think, you know, some guys can do that different ways. You can be, you know, outgoing and demonstrative like, like Baker was some of the other best leaders I've ever had at that position were guys that were, you know, more reserved and quiet, but kind of did it in their own way. But I think you, I think you have to be able to captivate people. You have to make people believe in you and, uh, believe in what we're doing. And, and there's just a, you know and, and that takes time, that takes effort, that takes you know sacrifice to be able to do that for people. Um, as far as on the field, uh, decision making and accuracy, uh, and toughness, I would say are probably the three most important things to me. There's got to be a toughness and a competitiveness, uh, they've got to be able to make fast decisions, especially with all we put on them and our offense, and then they've got to be able to execute them with great accuracy. Um, and, and so. We've been lucky had a few guys that have been able to bring those
0: qualities to the table
2: uh, like Baker has. And uh, I think we've got several here on campus that are more than capable of of having a great run here.
0: All right, so finally, when you lose guys like Baker and Orlando Brown and Mark Andrews, from a coaching standpoint, what's the bigger challenge, replacing their production or replacing their leadership?
2: Leadership, without a doubt, because I think – if you get the leadership right, uh, you know we're, we're we're lucky. We can recruit good good players here at Oklahoma, and, and we're working hard to do that right now. Um, and so I think we're going to be able to get talented guys in there. But it's all about the the mindset, the mentality of the group, of the individuals. And if you get that right, then I feel like the other things you know tend to fall in place. Um, and so yeah, that's going to be a challenge for us. We've got some good young leaders, but we've also uh, know we've got to press hard to develop that. That's been a key to our championships in the last few years, and it'll be a big key if we're going to get a fourth straight this year.
0: You know, Last thing, I want to mention this about the spring game. I would argue that maybe the biggest play from that game was that touchdown run from James Woods where he found a hole in the line. He broke through. He ran for a TD. And Lincoln, for those who don't know, he's a 15-year-old with a rare brain tumor who scored and was mobbed by the team. What's a moment like that mean for you as a coach and for your players?
2: Well, I mean, you can just create a moment for somebody that they probably could never have. And, uh, so, you know, we're, you know, it keeps it in perspective. I mean, we're all very fortunate to be a part of this game, whether we're playing, coaching, whatever we're doing. And, uh, to be able to share that with, with so many people, uh, share that with people that aren't as fortunate as we are, um, it keeps them in perspective. Uh, those, those people are the real heroes. Uh, trust, trust me, it inspired our coaches, our team a lot more than, than we would ever inspire them or anybody else. So, um, we were thrilled to be able to do it. Love being able to help people out in need, especially young children, and uh, that'll always be a big part of, of what we believe in here.
0: I talked about LeBron going LeBron. Let's talk Russ going Russ. After getting stomped in consecutive games by Utah, the Thunder go back to OKC in desperation mode, or at least I thought they would, because what they really did was go back in sleep mode because the Jazz carved them in game 5. Jay Crowder, Joe Ingles were taking turns lighting them up. Donovan Mitchell was wrecking Utah. Or wrecking OKC. Utah led by 15 at the half. They started the second half on an 8-1 run. It could not have been any more embarrassing for the Thunder than it was. Humiliating. Backs against the wall, they had no fire, they had no heart. Utah ripped that art, ripped that out. And it was looking like it was about time for OKC to rip out their golf clubs. Then Utah gets up 25 with 8.34 left in the third. It looked for sure like the Thunder had reached that point in the game and in their season where you do break the huddle with one, two, three, Cancun. Their season was over. The big three. Let's be real about that for a minute. Really, there's only a big two and some other dude. Anyway, The big two and that other dude looked like they were over. And believe me, it was all for the best. Because none of those guys want to be out there. None of them. But then something happened. Actually, Russell Westbrook happened. He hits back-to-back threes and hit OKC with the paddles. His pair of threes was followed up by a Paul George and one. Two more Westbrook buckets. And suddenly, it's a 13-point game. Normally, Trailing by 13 in the third of an elimination game is not a reason to party. But the way OKC had been playing, it was. And the Thunder fans were feeling it. And if they were loud when they were down by 13, then check the decibels right here. George, 35 seconds, cross-court wipe right to Westbrook, pulls up, pops, angle right, three to tie, Drop. it's even at 78, do you believe it? To ching a Thunder money ball, oh baby! 35 seconds left in the third, from 25 back it's even, Westbrook with 32 tonight. Thunder Radio, from 25 back, then it was even, that gave Westbrook 20 for the quarter, and he pulled them right back from the dead, after rightly taking heat for guaranteeing that he would shut down Ricky Rubio... Westbrook took that heat and blasted everybody with fire. Final numbers for this guy, 45 points, 15 boards, 7 assists. A classic Westbrook performance in every way, shape, and form. I mean, this dude, the fury, the ferocity, I mean, truly ridiculous. Everything you love about this guy and some of the things that you don't all wrapped up in one game. I mean, what the hell was that? Well, some of that was Rudy Gobert getting into foul trouble, followed by Derek Favors getting into foul trouble. But most of that, if not all of that, were Russ and Paul saying that Russ and Paul were not going to end last night. At one point, Westbrook and George scored 39 straight for the Thunder. They had 60 of their final 67. So Russ didn't change. Russ did what Russ does. He starts 5 for 19, and then he proceeds to put up 20 shots in the final 20 minutes. Not the most efficient shooter. Far from it. But when this guy gets rolling, you can cancel Christmas, or at least the early tea time. Because he's one of the few guys on the planet who can do what he just did. Drag a team back from down 25 to up 8. Now notice the one name that I didn't mention at all in the Thunder comeback. Let's put it this way. The Jazz were not the same team with Gobert on the bench, and the Thunder were not the same team with Melo on the bench. One team got worse. The other team got better, a lot better. The Stifle Tower limits opponents. Mello limits teammates. So while Westbrook and George were lighting up the Jazz, Mello was lighting up Thunder assistant Maurice Cheeks, trying to get back into the game. And the Thunder coach was rightfully reluctant to let him do so. The team belongs to Westbrook and George and Steven Adams. But mostly to Westbrook. Well, actually, entirely to Westbrook. Mello, stop talking. They'll let you know if they need you and they don't. You want to win? You want to help? Stay the hell out of the Big Two's way. You all lived to fight another day, and you had nothing to do with it. Stop making it about you, and when Russ comes off the floor for a breather, make sure you're out of your chair and let the guy who's busting his ass have it. Stop talking. Stay out of the way. You're not helping him. You're hurting him, man. And you shouldn't be trying to get back in that game when they're coming back without you. Mellow. George McPhee is the GM of the Golden Knights. George, it is so great to have you on. Thank you so much. How are you?
3: I'm doing well, Jim. Thank you.
0: George, thank you. I know you're already thinking about the game tonight, but if you could, can you take me back to when you were first named GM of the Vegas Golden Knights in the summer of 2016? What was it that attracted you to this opportunity?
3: Well, certainly, I, I was I, I was just looking forward to managing again. I had done it for 17 years in Washington. I'd been between jobs for a couple of years. I worked with the Islanders, and I was. <clears throat> I, I felt like I still had something to give as a manager and wanted that opportunity. So I got the opportunity. wasn't sure what I was getting into. I was impressed with Bill Foley, but didn't realize until I, I got here that we had everything uh we needed to win uh we had uh great support from our fan base uh lots of tickets sold the arena was state-of-the-art right on the strip the practice facility was 15 minutes away in a nice little community the airport's close. So it was easy to get around um there's no state tax which is uh, appeals to some players and no state income tax and i just thought if we do our jobs we can win here, and, and that's all you ever hope for.
0: Well, certainly, if you do your jobs you can win there, but I would argue that a season like this does not happen by accident. I know you had a plan. I know you were working that plan, but did that master plan include winning the division and sweeping the first round of the playoffs in your first season, or maybe are you running even ahead of your own schedule?
3: Yeah, we're running ahead of schedule, Jim. We, we, we weren't expecting to do this. What we were trying to do was be as good as we could be uh, and see where it goes from there, and um it's it's uh it, it's certainly gone uh better than we ever uh hoped for and um it's become a, a really unique story um you know in, in your side of the business or my side of the business we see uh, lots of the same stories it's just different teams different years different athletes but uh this story has never happened before and uh that's, that's why it's so unique and why so many people seem to be
0: attracted to it. George, you're so right. And from my side, I'm always looking for something to talk about. This is something very unique, something very different. And this is why I like talking about you guys so much. And in fact, in talking with your coach and a number of your players over the course of the year, there are two things that keep coming up over and over. The first is the chemistry in the dressing room. So I'm curious, how much was chemistry and attitude on your mind when you put that team together? What kind of guys were you looking for?
3: Well, that was very important to us. We, we really did a lot of vetting of our staff, and then the players that we were going to claim. We, we, what we really wanted, and it's cliche to some people, but we really wanted to establish a culture that was really important to us. Getting the best, best athletes we could and the most talented ones we could was important, but what was more important was the personalities. And we wanted low-legal, hard-working people. And, we, and the best human talent we could get in the front office and elsewhere in the organization, and we worked hard at it. And it's all come together, and it's been a terrific experience to come to work every day and working with the right people. You
0: know, Ryan Reeves, who you got from Pittsburgh at the deadline, put it another way. He said, quote, the whole roster is full of guys who teams said, we don't want you, or we want other players more. It's a bunch of guys who are hungry and they can all play, end quote. So when you've got an entire room and a whole team that has hunger and guys who can play, how powerful does that become?
3: Well, it becomes very powerful because we don't have the talent that other teams have, but we, we got 51 wins in the regular season and we won the first round of the playoffs. And it's, and I think that it's a great lesson for all of us about giving people a second chance, a third chance to prove themselves. And, and, and it's become a, a very powerful intangible and, uh, and speaks to, to why we're all in this business, but it's a, it's a, it was a great lesson learned for us and, and for others.
0: George McPhee joining us. I've got a graphic up on CBS Sports Network right now of William Carlson. Let me ask you about this guy. He had six goals with Columbus last year and then breaks out with 43 goals and 35 assists this season. I mean, you don't bring him over unless you see something in him. What did you see in him maybe that others did not?
3: Well, what we, we weren't expecting that kind of production, but what we did see was a good-sized guy who plays the game really well at both ends of the rink. You know, he scored a highlight film goal uh, near the end of our season where he went between his legs to score, and everybody loved it. <clears throat> but what I loved about that game from him was the very next shift. The other team had a great scoring opportunity, and he was the one that stopped it by being in the right place right down in our crease. And that was that's how he plays. He's, he's really uh, efficient at both ends of the rink. And we thought there was some upside, certainly not this much, but uh, we're delighted that, it, that it's worked out that way.
0: George, the other thing that comes up, I mentioned there were two things, but the other thing is the fan base and the way the community has embraced this team has been absolutely amazing. I think most people who visit Vegas, of course, know about the Strip. So when you took that job, how familiar were you with the community away from the Strip and in places like Summerlin?
3: Uh, I I had uh, no knowledge of it, and again, I wasn't sure what I was getting into, but whatever you think of Vegas, when you live here and work here, it's the opposite. Uh, we live in these beautiful, quiet suburbs, great housing, parks, restaurants, churches, schools. Uh, you can't beat the weather, and the people here are so friendly. It's got a real small-town feel to it, and uh, we feel very, very fortunate to be able to, to live and work here.
0: George, and golf. Lots of nice tracks. Good golf, too, oh, right? Oh, gosh. you know, We've got 10 courses, I think, within uh,
3: 10 minutes of this year, so... Um, our players are certainly taking advantage of that.
0: You know, In terms of the community, before you played your first home game, the community was rocked by that shooting that killed 58 people. In fact, your season opener in Dallas was just five days after the shooting. As an organization, there is no manual, there is no playbook. What was it like to go through that, and what was your approach in handling it as a leader?
3: Well, it's, needless to say, a really difficult experience. No one wants to be around it. No one wants to be associated with it. uh, And um, but we were we were suddenly on a, a, a huge platform opening night uh, that we never expected to be on or wanted um, but we had to get it right that night, Jim. We had to um, tastefully you know do it right and, and honor the victims, support the survivors and the families, and recognize the first responders and, um, and we got it right and what's been amazing is, you know, life as we knew it here was over, and something beautiful hopefully was going to come along and, and help, and and uh, T-Mobile Arena became quite a community hub socially for everyone in the community to grieve and then to celebrate, and then, you know, we had, to, we had to win the game after that. I wasn't expecting to win the game and didn't really care about the game. I was more focused on the ceremony and getting that right, but when we got to the game and suddenly said, you know, now we have to win this thing, and... Boy, when we scored the first couple of goals, we just kept scoring, and uh, the place, you know, almost blew the lid off the place. And it was really, I think, a cathartic experience for a lot of people to be able to, to have some positive emotion. And it's carried on throughout the, the entire season. And uh, there's been this real connection between our players and a real connection between uh, this team and this community. Uh, that's, you know, socially, it's been very, very helpful and helped this community heal.
0: George McPhee, my guest. George, you certainly did get it right. You all got it right. Final thought for you, because the second round gets underway tonight, and I so appreciate you coming on before a game. You've got San Jose. Your team is coming into the game with more than a week off. Given that the NHL postseason is such a grind, how valuable is it to get some time to rest and recover before the start of this round?
3: Well, we needed some time to recover. Uh, Certainly, uh, that was the hardest fought four-game sweep I've I've ever seen. You Mm -hmm. know, It was Uh, every game was tight and we won, uh, you know, we scored seven goals in the series and they scored three last night. Toronto and Boston scored seven and four. So it was tight. We got through it. We needed time to recover. Don't like that long of a layoff. And I'm sure San Jose doesn't either. So I don't think either team knows what to expect tonight, but it's going to be a terrific series. Both teams are disciplined. Both teams are fast. Both teams have depth and we're strong in the right positions and they're both well coached. So, don't know what to expect, but it's uh, it's sure fun being
0: here. 95-95, three seconds left. Cleveland inbounds the ball. Top of the circle. LeBron gets the ball. Two seconds, one second. LeBron for the win. Oh! Dude, dude, yes, yes. LeBron James. Please stay LeBron. Good night now.
1: How to show up with Coca-Cola energy.